The title of my message today is God Has Done It. God Has Done It. Does time ever play tricks on you? You set out for a week's vacation, and it seems like you arrived home only minutes after you left. You walk into the BMV for an appointment. Pretty soon you can't remember what day it is or how old you are or whether you've ever been anywhere else. We mark time. We make time. We pass the time. We spend time. We try to save time. When you're young, time seems like a friend. Time seems to be on your side. You have all the time in the world. But age quickly dispels that illusion, doesn't it? Time is like a river, a river that only flows in one direction. You can't climb out of it. You can't make it reverse its course. One day, time will run out. The destination that this river of time is so quickly pulling you toward is death. And no matter how much time you've saved throughout your life, on that day, you have no time left over. This is our eighth sermon in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. And just for a little review, in the first half of chapter 1, the preacher, the book's author, who we've identified as Solomon, declares his thesis for the entire book. Everything in life is fleeting. It is um, flickering. It is smoke. It is mist. It vanishes quickly. It is vanity. It's empty. It's pointless. And he illustrates that claim by showing against the backdrop of nature's cycles how we come and we go in the blink of an eye. We vanish without a trace. We're not long remembered. As we saw in the second half of chapter 1, and then all in chapter 2, the preacher goes on a quest for the meaning of life. He dives into the deep end of the pool, doesn't he? About what it means to learn pleasure and learn success in his work. And he hits the bottom every time, doesn't he? None of those things he discovers will fully and finally satisfy us. Now in chapter 3, we see the preacher turn to his attention to time. What will time make of you? Or what should you make of time? And the preacher's answers to those questions come in a series of snapshots that will show us something about time as we go through this passage together. I've organized my thoughts around four main headings, if you're taking notes. And I'll show you this in the text, why I've, I've put them in four headings. The first heading is in verses 1 through 8. The, the major reason for that is as you look at the text there, you'll see the verses 2 through 8 is set apart as a poem, as Hebrew poetry. It's all one group, and verse 1 introduces that. And then I also want you to notice in verse 10, the phrase, I have seen, underline that, 
Look down in verse 12. I perceive, underline that, look at verse 14. I perceived. Three very similar statements. And in those groups of verses from 9 to 11, 12 and 13, and 14 and 15, there are some additional truths, some additional snapshots, observations that Solomon's making about time. And I think it will be helpful to us today. This is like last week's text. This includes quite a bit about God himself. Not until we get to the second half of the, poor, of the passage, starting in verse 9. But there's a lot about God here. There's a lot of positive things. You'll see some phrases here that are very uh, reflective of what we looked at last week. So a very encouraging text again, and glad to have a couple of those in a row. Let's look at the first point this morning, uh, which I'm, I'm entitling the tapestry of time. The tapestry of time, verses 1 through 8. The, the preacher shows us this tapestry here in verses 1 through 8. Let me just uh, quickly run through those uh, pairs again. For everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. That's the, that's the main point. And now here comes this poem to illustrate that main point. A time to be born and a time to die. My wife and daughter read a, bir- a, a um, what do you call it, birth shower, baby shower, a birth shower, baby shower, <laughs> yesterday. Tomorrow, Pastor Trey will lead the funeral service for our sister Marilyn. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. If you live in Indiana, you understand that. A time to kill and a time to heal. You think maybe of the farmer who is uh, raising his livestock and the same care that goes into providing and nourishing and brushing and feeding those livestock is one day going to slaughter them. A time to break down, a time to build up. A time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. Time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and every father's favorite line when their daughter is dating. A time to refrain from embracing what the boyfriend needs to understand clearly. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. Garage sales, right? A time to tear, a time to sow, a time to keep silence, a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate. Not bad hatred, by the way, right? Only godly hatred. Hate the things God hates. A time for war, and a time for peace. Every every little vignette here, pictures come into your mind, doesn't it? You can picture every one of these things. Someone cynically said, That what you have here in these 28 statements is 14 pluses and 14 minuses, which add up to nothing at all. And it's a way of looking at our lives, which is exactly like that. This life is a patchwork of joy and grief, success, failure, trying, giving up. Starting, finishing. 
And so many of these times described here in this poem are beyond our control, aren't they? A time to be born, a time to die. We weren't in control of our arrival, were we? And we don't know when our departure will be either. And that's part of the problem for us, isn't it? That's an immediate nuisance to men and women, especially those of us who like to be in control of everything. So many of these times and seasons that these eight verses are talking about are things that happen to us. They crash in on our lives. Time sets hard limits, hard boundaries to what is possible, to what is wise. How about young people in the auditorium this morning? How's 2021 going for you? How about the last year? Anything especially hard in the last year for you? Have you learned anything in this past year that you might not have learned otherwise? You know, one of God's purposes in taking away so many good things that we take for granted, like going to normal school or being able to visit your grandparents or going on vacation. So much of God's purposes in taking away things like that sometimes is to teach us wisdom, even from a young age. You ever heard the saying, it's on a lot of Hallmark cards, whenever God shuts a door, he opens a window. Well, there's two problems with that. Number one, no, he doesn't. Sometimes he just shuts the door in your face and he expects you to sit there and wait and be silent. We see this often in the Psalms. We read David. Second problem with that saying, if God does open a window, what are you supposed to do? Jump out of it and break your leg? This is not the kind of way of understanding God's providence that we need to engage as believers. But in any case, that saying tries to dodge the hard wisdom of these verses. When a baby is born, it's a time to rejoice. When a loved one dies, it's a time to mourn. Don't confuse the two seasons. Submit to what each one calls for. Submit to what every time in your life calls for. And in this particular season that we're living in, this particular season of unusual suffering and inconvenience and unexpected disruption to our lives, some of us are learning for the first time that suffering is a stewardship. Suffering is a work. God has put a test of your faith in front of you. And some of us are coming to the realization that not every problem can be fixed. And some difficulties simply have to be endured. Not every obstacle is a hurdle. For those of you who, who did cross country, you know, if you're running full speed on a track and you come up to a hurdle, what do you do? You jump over it and keep going, right? But if you're running full speed down that track and you come to a cement wall, you either have to slam on the brakes or else you're going to sustain a pretty severe injury. The more used to you are as, as 
people, as Americans, as, as successful Westerners, the more used you are to winning and succeeding and controlling and prospering, the more likely you are to mistake a wall for a hurdle. And the tapestry of time that God is weaving in your life is an alternating pattern of gains and losses. It's the way he designed it to be. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. So there's the tapestry of time. God's weaving it together. We don't have a lot of control over it, and we need to submit to what every time brings us. It's life. But notice, secondly, the riddle of time. In verses 9 through 11, the preacher poses this riddle to us here in verses 9 uh, through 11, as I mentioned. Look Look at verses 9 and 10 here to start off with. What gain has the worker from his toil... I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So I think these two verses go together, the the idea of toil or work with the business and the busyness of life. In verse 9, the preacher asks again the question that he asked in chapter 1, verse 3. And pretty much the question that ran all through chapter 2. He's essentially saying, what's the point of going to work. You go to work so you can buy money to buy food so you can stay alive, so you can go to work to get money to buy food to stay alive, so you can go to work. You see where I'm going? What does the worker gain from all his toil? Why am I doing this? People say that all the time. Why do I do this? What lasting benefit does this life under this S-U-N bring? And then in verse 10, the preacher reminds us of this comprehensive quest for the meaning of life that he he undertook in the second half of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2. He's reminding us that he has seen it all. Notice the repetition here. The preacher's introducing key themes and then returning to them again and again and again. Why is this book so repetitive? Because life is. The book's form matches its meaning. Life is cyclical, and so is Ecclesiastes. But then verse 11 adds a new thought. He has made everything beautiful in its time. In other words, each season has something to show us and teach us. Every time there's some trace of God's goodness. Every time is ordained by his wisdom. And every time there is a beauty that will pierce your heart in wonder and amazement if you only keep looking long enough to see it. Verse 11 continues, Also he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. 
there's, a, there's an irony here. Here's the riddle, right? God has made us as human beings long for more meaning than this world offers. Our hearts, he has implanted in our hearts a desire for fullness and permanence that nothing in this world measures up to. And he's given us an insatiable desire to know what on earth is going on. What is the point of all of this birth and death, killing and healing, mourning and dancing? What's the point? But, and this is the hard part to hear, God is also the one, not only the one who put that longing in our hearts, but he's also the one who has withheld the answers that we long for. We can't find the whole scope and sequence of what God is doing. God is the one who has made time a riddle to us. Now, it's important to remember, the preacher is acting a little bit here like a stand-up comic. He's working an angle all through this book. His angle is dictated by the viewpoint that he's adopted, by the particular mindset that he is inhabiting right now. In technical terms, we call this, in life, in philosophy, we call this epistemology. How do we come to know things? And for Solomon, the way he has come to know things has been by simply observing and analyzing. I, I saw, I perceived. And we are constantly striving in our lives for a God's eye view of life, aren't we? We are yearning for some kind of a mountaintop perspective. We want to be at the top, able to see all of the landscape around us. That will give us an idea of what God's doing in our lives so it all makes sense. But we see such a small slice of reality and we understand much less than we even see. Trying to make sense of life is like trying to assemble a 5,000-piece puzzle. Any puzzlers here? I like to do puzzles. In fact, well, as a side, I won't go down that rabbit trail. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you even a 1,000-piece puzzle takes a while. Try to assemble a 5,000-piece puzzle with no picture on the box. I know a little bit what this is like because my daughter Ashley here for my birthday got a puzzle for me. I think it's 1,000 pieces, and it's completely white. No picture. It's just white, all white. I haven't figured out the puzzle yet. It's been sitting on my dining room table for about a year. I don't even think we have the edges assembled. Trying to understand life is like trying to put together a 5,000-piece puzzle without a picture. Life is a tapestry, but a lot of times we only see the reverse side of the tapestry. You ever, you ever flipped over a quilt 
or a tapestry. And you know what you see on the other side? You see some strange frayed ends sticking out here and there. You see some shapes or some muddled images here and there. God is the only one who sees the whole tapestry the right way as he's weaving it. So a key part of living wisely is learning to live with that limitation. God is the author. We are the characters. Does Hamlet know what Shakespeare is doing? The riddle of time sets a hard limit to how much you can plan and how much you can project your life. There's no guarantee that you will accomplish your goals, fulfill your dreams, get what you want out of life. There's no guarantee. We strive to be the masters of our fate, don't we? We like to think of ourselves as massive ocean liners that can chart a course and plow ahead mile after mile despite any ocean currents or any storms that we might encounter no matter how big the waves are we keep following our goals sticking to them with a a laser focus but the truth is really really we're like tiny little lifeboats with sails made out of our own torn clothes and yet we keep yearning and longing and asking questions just like the preacher. Blaise Pascal once wrote, We desire truth and find in ourselves nothing but uncertainty. We seek happiness and only find wretchedness and death. We are incapable of not desiring truth and happiness and incapable of either certainty or happiness. Now again, remember, this is perspective under the sun, S-U-N. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ and you're sitting here today, what do you yearn for? What do you long for? What knowledge would you most like to have? Is there any way that we can find out what God has done from beginning to end? Does this riddle of time have an answer? Well, yes, it does. The riddle of time does have an answer, and the answer has a name, and the name is Jesus. Jesus is the beginning and end of all things. In Revelation, he said as much, didn't he? Revelation twenty-two thirteen: I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. God the Son is our creator and our ruler. He is our source of life, eternal life, and he is our destination. He is where we are headed. We were created for him. That's what Paul wrote in Colossians 1.17. He tells us all things were created through him and for him. So when we rejected him and rebelled against him and we earned God's wrath and his just condemnation, Christ came to reclaim us for himself. He did that by dying on a cross to bear the penalty for our sin and rising from the dead to break death's curse. 
And that's why we gather on the Lord's Day, as we say so many times on the first day of the week, because this is the day when Jesus rose from the dead, and the resurrection is what changes everything. The resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, liberates us from the tyranny of time. And that liberation is only for those who believe. And it is for all those who believe. So if you've never turned from sin and trusted in Christ, trust in Him today, friend. Rely on Him. Jesus solved time's riddle by entering time, enduring the worst of time, and obtaining a life Beyond the ravages of time. Jesus did that. That's the riddle of time. Let's look at, thirdly, the joy, the joys of time, verses 12 and 13. The preacher commends these joys to us. Verse 12, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. Sound familiar? This is God's gift to man. As we considered last week, that last phrase is crucial. God's gift. That's what makes the difference between everything in life being bleak or being a blessing. That's the difference. Every good thing we enjoy in this life is a gift from God. Food, drink, pleasure in our work. They are good gifts from a good God who loves his children. Last week, as he was recounting this long quest from chapter 1, verse 12, all the way down through chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, the preacher, didn't it feel for a few weeks like the preacher was holding our heads underwater? You know that feeling? It's like he's holding our heads underwater, and then finally, at the end of chapter 2, he releases us and lets us burst up into the air of God's grace for the first time in the book. And we breathed in that goodness that we had waited so long for in the darkness. Here in our passage, it's like he's pushing us under and bringing us back up in rapid succession again and again and again. He's pivoting back and forth from looking at the world from a secular perspective and then looking at the world from the point of view of everything being God's creation, being God's gift, all of it sustained and held by him at every single moment. Imagine a large room like this with a a stand in the middle with a globe on top of it, a big globe. And our preacher throughout this book is like someone in that room standing about 10 feet away from that globe and slowly circling the globe and taking a series of pictures as he walks around it. When our preacher's on one side, that's the only side he sees, And he shows us what he sees. But then when he goes around to the other side, he shows us what he sees there. 
And then he just sets these different snapshots side by side. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. These verses, verses 12 and 13, draw us out of the bleakness of life under the S-U-N, the secular mindset. And it draws us into the joy of receiving everything as a good gift from the hand of a kind and faithful and generous God. These good gifts, they're, they're stamped by time. They're, they're limited by time. They're bounded by time. And one day, they will vanish into time. The babies who are born will become toddlers. And not long after, they'll become preschoolers. And not long after, they'll become elementary students. And eventually, they grow up and move out. Or at least, we wish they would. Just kidding, Jason. Even the best meal that you would ever have lasts only a couple hours, doesn't it? And you're hungry again in the morning. Even the most satisfying project that you ever have at work eventually comes to the finish line. And then you're left with these mountains of boring paperwork that you've pushed aside in order to finish the project. In order to receive the joy that God intends for you to get from these gifts, you have to receive their limits too. You have to respect their limitations. The limit of a cake that you're baking is 350 degrees for 30 minutes. If you cook it for 500 degrees for an hour, you won't have a cake. You'll have a smoldering mess and a ruined oven and probably some fire alarms and a visit from the fire department. All the joys of time are small, good things. If you blast them with your idolatrous expectations, you try to make them what you think you should get out of God, and you try to get them out of these things, you're going to miss out on the true purpose of your life. And you're going to miss out on the small pleasures. And you're going to miss out on all of that. Put too much weight into that job. Put too much weight into that relationship and you'll crush it. Expect too much out of it and you'll, be, you'll leave unfulfilled. But receive it with open hands and you'll taste the goodness of the Lord that He's infused into that gift. The joys of time. Notice lastly, verses 14 and 15, the Lord of time. The preacher reminds us of who is in charge of time, verses 14 and 15. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor taken away anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. For a parent of young children, there are a few more troubling moments than discovering just the cap of a permanent marker. To a toddler, 
blank, clean walls are just a bigger canvas. Why limit yourself to eight and a half by 11 inches when you can go big, right? Toddlers are not to be given permanent markers because we do not trust them. They are ignorant of their potential to do lasting damage. They shouldn't be entrusted with such power. Verses 14 and 15, listen to this. Verses 14 and 15 tell us that God writes all of history with a permanent marker. Whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. Time is beyond our control. But it is not beyond God's control. We can't find out the big picture. But God is the one who is weaving the tapestry together. The creator of time is the Lord of time. Before God created all things, was there time? No. He brought time. Time is a feature of the existence of creatures like you and I. Before that, it was only God. His complete, his full, his self-conscious, eternal existence. And the same God who created time rules and governs time. And why does he govern history the way that he does? When you can't make sense of things, when you're flabbergasted by what's going on in the world around you, and haven't we been there a few times this year? Verse 14 tells us, God has done it so that people fear before him. To say that people should fear God seems overblown to a lot of people today. Seems exaggerated. Kind of strikes the wrong tone, you know. Doesn't God want us to be his friends and his children? Isn't God a God of love? Well, the only reason why it would seem strange to you to fear God is if you've shrunken God in your mind down to the size of a creature and inflated yourself to be the size of the Creator. God upholds all things, but is upheld by none. God encompasses all things and is encompassed by no one. God governs all things, and He is not threatened by anyone. God ordains all things. And guess what? He's not surprised by anything. That is why you should fear him. Look at the end of verse 15. After he repeats his point there from chapter 1 about how there's nothing new under the sun, the last part of verse 15 says, and God seeks what has been driven away. It's kind of a puzzling phrase. 
Think of it this way. We experience time like somebody on a road trip. We're driving along this long, flat, straight highway. Everything that happens in time recedes into that rearview mirror farther and farther away as we drive. It all just disappears behind us. We can't reach back and retrieve any of the past. We don't have that ability. But God is sovereign over all of time. He is concerned with, that's another way to translate, seeks, God seeks. He is concerned with everything that happens, everything that has happened in the past, All of time is laid bare before him. And for Christians who come to terms with this truth, that God is in control and we aren't, if you come to terms with that, in those kinds of people, you will will see two things are produced. And these are good things. And I see them in lots of you. First, Someone who submits themselves to God as the sovereign ruler of time is marked by humility. They're amazed that God would intervene in their life at all. They're also marked by security. We live, think about this, we live the same life as the lost people. We go through the same kind of things, we get the same virus, we have the same challenges with our children. Christianity doesn't take you out of that. It leaves you in. So how do you make sense of all of the frustrating cycles of life that Solomon's been detailing for us in the first two chapters? Because we are as confident as Paul was when he wrote in Philippians 1, that he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. That he makes, as this text says, everything beautiful in its time. Which is a lot like Romans 8, when Paul also writes there, that all things work together for the good of those who love God. Friends, listen, God has no abandoned projects. And he has no forsaken children. And when we submit ourselves to the sovereign Lord of time, he works in us humility and security and a proper fear and reverence of the Lord. I'll ask the praise team to return to the front for our final song here in a moment. As they're coming, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ here today, and I don't claim to know anybody's heart here, there's a bunch of us here that say we are followers of Jesus, but only Jesus knows that for sure. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ and you know that in your heart, it should come as no surprise that your life would be marked by frustration. And by confusion, it shouldn't surprise you if you choose to live in the dark, you can't see. 
When a man or a woman begins to think for a moment, I'm in charge. You have to realize you're not in charge of anything. You weren't in charge of your birth. You won't be in charge of your death. You can't make leaves fall from the trees. You can't make the green shoots grow out of the ground. You're in a process that you have very, very little control over. Anything you think you're in charge of is just an illusion. Do you think you can pull a string and make God dance for you? Oh, no, friend. And by the way, brothers and sisters, this explains your friends at work, too. Don't be unkind to them tomorrow when they show up at work and they're frustrated with everything. They're confused by everything. They've gone through another Sunday. No worship in it for them. Well, in fairness, we could say there was worship in it, right? The lost people worship at their own shrines. They do their own things. They assemble the gods of their own making, but they don't, they don't satisfy them. They couldn't answer them. They couldn't speak to them. They couldn't hear them. In fact, they're in charge of their own gods. So here they are Monday morning wondering why you have a smile on your face and hope in your eyes. Tell them why. Tell them why. Some of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the conversion of St. Augustine back in the 4th century. There he is now. Interesting time things happening today. Thank you, brother. St. Augustine turned his back on everything that was made available to him in his youth. He ran away from home. He spent his life in wickedness. He ignored the prayers and the cries of those who loved him. But finally, God came into his world at a very specific time. In his grace, he used the tiny voice of a little child playing in the garden, singing a little nursery rhyme. The nursery rhyme went, Open, take up, and read. Open, take up, and read. And Augustine thought, I should open the Bible and read it. And he did. And the Bible was like a dagger to his soul, his words. It came like a ray of light into his darkness. It came like a river quenching the deepest thirst of his life, the thirst that was never met in his immoral lifestyle. And Augustine captures this transformation in these words that he wrote, well known. Oh God, you made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. I know this about you. I don't know where all of you live. I don't know all of your street. I don't know all of your incomes. I don't know all of your IQs. But I do know this about you. You have a burden that's been laid on your back by God. 
eternity in your heart. You have a restlessness in your life, a curiosity of wanting to know how it all works out. And the reason he gave that to you is so that when you notice it, that burden maker might become your burden taker. And that's what Jesus is for us, brothers and sisters. He helps us to make sense of time. He helps us to be content in not knowing everything. And not trying to pull out too much meaning from objects that were never intended to give us that meaning. He helps us to put our hope in God, who is in control, who is concerned about all of history, and one day will deal with all of history. And he gives us that confidence, that humility, that security that we need to live in this life under the sun. If you're here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus, but your heart is restless and you're not satisfied by anything you found, (coughs) I would call you to Jesus this morning. And I would ask that after our service is done this morning, if you would come and grab one of us, any one of these Christians around you, come up to our prayer room up here in the corner of, of, uh, up to your left here in the auditorium and speak to a Bible counselor. Get this matter settled of who you are worshiping, who your life is all about, who you will submit to, who will be king of your life. And Christian, if you're here this morning, I trust that you'll take some measure of comfort. Perhaps this last year, year and a half, two years has really done a number on you. It's messed you up. Maybe it's caused you to start to be afraid and not trust the Lord. Maybe it's caused you to start trying to find satisfaction somewhere else. Come back to Jesus. He's never left you. He's always ready to forgive. His mercy is plentiful to the thousand generations of those who love him. Come back to him this morning. Confess your sin. Confess your fear. And start fearing the one who controls time. Find your joy in him. Your satisfaction, your contentedness, the meaning of life in him. Let's stand together, brothers and sisters. We'll close with a song this morning that helps us focus on who God is and all of his power and all of his might and all of his glory. And then we'll have our benediction.